This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. So, uh, the next thing I want to do is I want to I want to set it as a long-term goal to replace the conifers with a food forest. And, and I'm totally okay with there being some half-acre islands of conifers here and there. But, but the whole conifer monocrop has to go in time. Not all at once, in time. And so you're going to take all this wood that's sitting there, you're going to build wafatis, berm sheds, wafati greenhouses, freezer wafatis, etc. And uh, so that's going to use up a fair amount of the timber. Now, again, I think the, the way to do it on the first few passes is much like current uh, logging practices that are considered best, where you're leaving those biggest, tallest, healthiest trees behind and taking out the, the middle-of-the-road trees. And, and that's what you're going to build with. Um, and so when you get enough of this built, then that's going to use some of the trees. And then next thing you know, you've got somebody else coming onto your land, and that person uh, works with you to build another structure, which takes up some more of the trees. And um, and if you take enough out from one spot, leaving a little bit of a clear cut, maybe that's a, a place where you're going to introduce uh, a, a lovely food forest. And then along the way, you're going to build a lot of ponds, like a quarter-acre pond for every two acres maybe. And then um, uh, junk pole fence. I think that all that stuff that was going into that pile and just being burned – uh, there's stuff we can build with that. And one of those things is junk pole fence. I think that there's a long, long, long list of stuff that you can make out of all these different kinds of forest materials, all these different kinds of wood product. And in a way, you're taking all that wood that's standing out there and you are sequestering it into structures where that wood will last much longer. Um. So let's see. Uh, I want to I want to spend three hours talking about junk pole fence, but you know <laughs> I'm going to skip past a lot of that because we're a little short on time. Uh, a lot of the wood, like we, I talked about the masticator earlier, and it's like you know you can kind of do the same sort of a thing with um, a big branch and a pruner. You know, chop chop chop, and now you've got a bunch of sticks that are like 18 inches long, and they all lay flat on the ground. And now they make a great mulch. You could do it for gardens or on site. So rather than like if, if you're kind of like, oh, here's all these branches lying on the ground and they're going to dry and next year they're going to be a magnificent fuel for a wildfire, if you just kind of chop them up a little bit, now they lay flat on the ground. And once they lay flat on the ground, then they get wet and they stay wet. And they, they add carbon to the soil. They improve the soils everywhere. And then, uh, but, but if they're up off the ground, they'll dry out, and they are just perfect fuel wood 
for when a wildfire comes through. Uh, Google culture. I mean, I think we all know about that one. Google culture for the inside and for mulch on the outside. Um, uh, you can use all that wood to be fuel for rocket mass heaters, rocket cooktops, rocket ovens, rocket hot water, or outdoor fire entertainment. I think that that's something where if you've got oodles of wood, you could you can put up three times more firewood than you need, and next thing you know, you find that you are happy to have a little fire once in a while outside where everybody sits around the fire and enjoys being around the fire. Um, another great one, since you've got ponds, is chinampas. All right, I'm going to pause right here for a moment, and, Alan, I'll let, I'll let you do a few so I'm not just dominating this. <laughs> so I think, you know, that a, a lot of the things you're talking about in the human habitation side, I think, you know, obviously we're going to agree upon. But I'm going to well, back up, and, and as I was saying, you're thinking about it, I was going, like, okay, let me present a little bit of an alternative way of approaching the whole thing, just, just for the fun of it. Okay. Um, so one of the, the terms I use, like in my integrated regenerative design framework, is I talk about permaculture versus ecoculture. And the difference is that permaculture is land that is managed primarily for human yields, and ecoculture is uh, land that we help manage for uh, yields for all life. And so what I would like to say is I'm moving in on my one million acres that um, I would not go for putting people on that land in equal distribution. I would uh, be looking at putting people in clusters, um, of uh, in, in, you know, instead of equally distributed because what I would like to do is figure out how to take 30% of that land and put it into permaculture and the other 70% of that land and put it into ecoculture um, and maybe 60-40, you know. And that the, the ecoculture doesn't mean that we're not managing it for human yields. It means that we are not predominantly managing it for human yields. What we're doing is we are basically treating it as tending the wild sort of kind of. And so the next thing I would be looking at would be, hmm, can we bring that in? And then, yes, I agree with a lot of the things you're talking about, about starting to break up that that um, that monoculture, but I would also want to bring in the animal workers as well. This is one of those places where browsing ruminants really earn their keep. I know, uh, Paul, you're not a big fan of goats, but this is one of those places where goats actually really fit, which is they are one of the browsing ruminants that helps take and keep the understories of forests from getting too overgrown. There's places there where they absolutely can earn their keep if you move them across the landscape, allowing them to clear things out for you. So I would be looking at that. Um, and in the very beginning, the short term, in order to help reduce some of that fuel load and begin to take some of that ligandous material and turn it into fertility, I would like to take some of that and put it through ruminants and browsers to get it down on the ground in a, you know, compost-in-place sort of nutrient quick start. Um, I agree that the sort of the chop and drop you're talking about 
uh, is a great way of taking some of that of that down and uh, and getting it. But you know, the, the thinning you're talking about is a sort of exactly good practice. Um, but what we're really trying to do here, I'd be looking at it on the broad scale of trying to create a successional mosaic. Um, instead of saying, ah, you know, uh, break it up into small little bits of a little tiny bits of uh, of, of, uh, of conifer forest left, I would say, hmm, that's a, that's a, that's a uh, ecosystem that has a lot of ecosystem services when it is in the context of a larger successful mosaic when you have everything that's moved into a monoculture of, you know, conifer forest, then it becomes a desert. But when you have islands of conifers uh, in this in that uh, climax forest, and it's surrounded by other parts of the successional mosaic, that creates a lot of edge, and the species that move back and forth actually create benefit. Um, in a lot of ways with the other successional stages. So I would look at maybe keeping 5% at least of the land in a few good blocks um, of uh, conifers and conifer forests that allow for enough um, contiguous habitat for the species that are specific to that habitat to flourish, especially the ones that need a little bit of space. But I would be looking at taking the rest of that and moving it into other stages of the successional mosaic. I would want to see you know, probably some meadow systems and some productive um, hardwood forests and um, just and basically see all that. And I absolutely agree that there's a lot of surface water impoundments need to go in, right? What we're doing here is we're starting to increase edge. We're starting to build a lot of soil organic matter by getting out of this monoculture regime. Um, yes, we continue to manage with prescribed burns, uh, reducing fuel load in the, in the proper places, and, uh, you know, doing that specifically to improve animal habitat. And that would open up the space to be able to repair hydrology um, and to be able to start building those water retention spaces, you know, high in the landscape, to think specifically about how to restore streams and rivers and wetlands. Uh, by, you know, slowing, sinking, and um, spreading water and getting it in instead of, you know, lots of runoff. Um, And um, then I think the other thing I would do is I would um, want to figure out how to bring in uh, a bunch of expert hydrological engineers. And the best ones I know of are beavers. So I'd like to figure out how to be able to get some beavers back on the landscape and let them do what they do in terms of repairing the hydrology of the landscape, re, you know, re, um, re, reestablishing water being held high in the landscape and um, keeping the, the landscape from drying out so excessively over um, when you have periods uh, of, of light, you know, uh, drought and so forth. So with that, I would have you know, these areas of permaculture inholdings all through in which there's a lot of edge between the ecoculture and the permaculture and um, that people could then also support the ecoculture directly around them. Um, I think that's a very fast, quick way of running through some of the things I would think about doing. I have beavers on my list too, and there's other ways to add back 
wetlands. Uh, yes. You know, there's a lot of fun things you can do. But but setting setting that aside, I, w- I want to explore the thing that you're saying about uh, the ecoculture. Um, and it's kind of like, okay, so it sounds like you're describing you're going to have a great big zone four over there. And, and while people go in there and they use this land and but they, they don't they don't live there they're they're farther away they're so far away it's inconvenient to go over there but I mean in order for them to go over there I, I kind of feel like you'd you'd either have to pay them to go over there or you've got to do something so that they're going over there to get something that is either something that they need want or are up for selling Um and and so I want to, because basically my feeling is is, uh, and I hate to use this word, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's a bit more homogenous than what you are describing. So I'm kind of thinking like all of my pieces will be divided into all these hundred acre chunks, and on each hundred acre chunk, there will probably be a small community in oh I don't know in the middle or on one end, and then they will um, develop a relationship with the rest of the hundred acres. But, mm-hmm. but it sounds like what you're saying is is like take all take maybe that same number of people, maybe a lot less than the numbers of people, maybe the same number almost, yes. And then they get kind of moved over to that side, you know, on half a little the more land clumpy over there. They're a little more clumpy. Okay, okay. I think mine end up a little clumpy, but but it's like here's your hundred acres, and they're probably going to kind of clump. Onto the you know on a spot on the hundred acres, and then some of the you know the stuff that's near their clump will be their zone two sort of, and then their zone three, and then the stuff that's on the farthest from their clump is their zone four. But I kind of feel like what you said was is like I want to take, okay, but maybe what you're saying is instead of hundred acre chunks, it's more like thousand acre chunks, and then all the people are clumped over on one end of that thousand acre chunk. I think you're getting closer because to me it's like several things that emerge as I'm thinking about this. Number one is that there are a lot of species that need a certain amount of undisturbed habitat in order to be able to thrive. Number two is from seeing a number of projects, I think humans thrive better when they are a slight bit denser. Um, and have surrounding outholdings. So to me, I'm thinking about this almost like here's a clump of people, and the the inholdings right around where they are is like a zone one to zone two, and that is definitely high permaculture, right? Because we are we are managing that space primarily almost you know for human yields, very dense human yields. As we go out to like a zone three, it's still being managed. It's sort of in the surrounding outholdings, right? And it's being um, managed. Uh, a lot for human yields, but in this space you also have a lot of ecological space, right? You, you've got, if, if you look, you know, we talked about, I think earlier we talked about Biggest Little Farm, and to me, like, some of that space is exactly that. You see it's wildlife habitat plus managed for human habitat. It's really, you know, there's, there's wildlife going on there. And you move out towards the zone four, and now you're moving into like a different balance, right? You are still getting human yields out of it, but you are seeing actually 
uh, a moving towards a more eco-culture regime where it's just about as much producing uh, yields for everything else. And you move out into Zone 5, which it's like, well, we'll go in and help, and we will wildcraft out of that space. But So we have, like, these donations and gradients of our amount to which we are actively managing and the degree to which we are actively managing for human-specific yields versus, you know, allowing space for all life, which is one of the permaculture ethics that mm-hmm. Mollison, you know, pops up in, in a couple of places, that all life has to have its place. So to me, that would be a little bit more of the idea of how I would look at putting the same number of people on the land um, in, to me, it, also produces more polyculture of land use and um, more edge. So now, when you're trying to make undisturbed spaces for for the, for a certain wildlife, you're. I think I'm going to to try to pretend like I can read your mind for a moment. I think mm-hmm. what you're thinking of is is like, sure, there will be some conifer islands. But yes. we will manufacture some islands of deciduous forest as well, which will be relatively undisturbed. There might even be five or six different flavors of that. Yes. And we will keep the conifer stuff in check because the conifer is a climax species, and it gets to be a climax species dominantly through its allelopathy. Fair? Right. Yes. Okay. So, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the whole thing is that – most people, I, I think, would almost subconsciously think about this as like a static mosaic. And that's why I keep on, when I teach the PDC and everything else, I keep on calling a shifting mosaic. Because this management regime, if we do it and it's permanent, as in permaculture, mm-hmm. then it is time shifting, right? That where there is pine forest right now, 500 years ago, it might be, you know, actually being brought out and brought back into early succession so that that land can regenerate. And we might be allowing other places that were, you know, deciduous forests to success into conifer forests over time. And that shifting mosaic of meadows and prairie lands and deciduous forests and everything else would be shifting constantly over generations around the more highly settled uh, human you know, inholdings. And um, that would be how we could make space for all life to have places to live while at the same time working with nature instead of against it and allowing succession to take its place and still extract yields from all five zones uh, in a way that is regenerative. Okay. All right. All right. I'm kind of thinking that, um, I, I, you know what, and there might be a whole different podcast that we need to do where we argue about uh, how clumpy to clump in this mm-hmm. design of people. Um, and because and I'm kind of thinking, like, if you get too far away from the people, then that land isn't going to get as much love. And I kind of feel like what I want to do a little bit is spread out zone ones. If I can have more zone ones and I can have paths between the different zone ones, yep. then then I, I grow more zone ones and I grow more zone twos. So, so I kind of feel like in your design you have a lot more zone four and five, whereas in my design mm-hmm. I've got more zone one, two, and three. 
Yeah, and uh, I think the thing is, it's kind of like how do you pattern? I don't know if like, if you would have. I mean, if you have the same number of people, they're spread out. It's going to have to take a little bit of thinking on that one. But you know, to me, like the whole thing about how you pattern the people on the landscape has to do with how do you create a huge amount of edge between the zones one and twos, and then then that creates a lot of adjacent zone three, and then creates the fact that people aren't too far from the zone fours and fives, that they are spread out in this pattern. <clears throat> Even though they're a lot more clumpy, if you spread that out in the right way, you set it up where, on average, human beings have a lot more access to nature, you know. Because um, we could go two, two compl- – let's just talk about the two extremes, right? We could have a clumpy regime that looks like New York City or Tokyo, Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is way too far on that, right? Our clumps are way too big. Right. Um, on the others, we could have everybody living by themselves on their own 10 acres with no, no other human being in 10 acres, right? And that's way too far. You know, we've, we've just destroyed community and everything else. So it's like, what is the right amount of clumpiness for human beings? And it also turns out that human beings have, like are built for a certain level of social clumpiness, right? We know that if you get too small, you're not resilient. If you get too big, all of a sudden things get weird and you get, you get all kinds of weird power dynamics and you get all kinds, you know, all kinds of stuff. So how do we pattern people onto the landscape in a degree of clumpiness that is right for human beings as social creatures, but also allows for them to be patterned onto the landscape in a way that, increases the abundance of the landscape um, and allows for humans to have the contact with nature that they need in order to be optimally healthy and happy. I, I think some people it's going to be 20 people under one roof, and then some people it's going to be like, I want to be at least a half a mile away from the next human being. And, yeah, with, and so with the, humans there's no one size fits all. I'll agree with right, that. Right, so there's some diversity in that respect. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, but all right, all right. Uh, let's before I get too far down that path because I do think that's a fascinating path and I want to talk about it in great depth. I'm going to finish my list of basically I want to take the wood that is fuel wood, and rather than just having it burn up in a wildfire or have it burn up as part of a wildfire prevention package, then I'm trying to list a, a bunch of stuff to do with that wood that would either slow it down or sequester it. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm just going to whip through the rest of my list. There's, there's not much left. Uh, branches and twigs are great for eliminating muddy trails. Yep. Uh, branches and twigs are also really good for chicken and animal bedding. Yes. Um, uh, wildlife brush piles. So it would be kind of like the same thing as the piles you were making to burn, but don't put the tarp over it. Just leave right. it there. That that becomes, a, 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 I love the way that you say it, it becomes like a little zone five right in your backyard. Right. Uh, you can make things like trellises and the like for all your d- different gardening needs. Um, uh, furniture, you know, good old, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of things you can build out of this. Wood, round wood furniture as well as non-round wood. I mean, I think this is this is kind of funny. Somebody was talking about, like, no good cabinet maker or no good furniture maker 
uses round wood. They only use the dimensional wood that comes from a mill. <laughs> yeah, that was my response. It's like, you, sir, are a dumb fuck. Because I think the the best furniture makers in the world, they go out into the forest to select the wood, and then they make a piece of furniture that works with the 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 bins of the wood. And, That's the most um, beautiful furniture I've ever seen. And the sturdiest and the longest yes. lasting. The very yes. best is is where the artisan gets the wood from the woods. And, yep. and it's like, uh, so what a magnificent way to sequester carbon is to make furniture out of carbon, out of trees. Mm-hmm. Um, another great one, uh, kind of along the lines of Chinampas, is going to be to reduce algae problems in ponds, because I've seen a, a lot of ponds. They're just covered in that muck, and it's like it's amazing how you throw a few logs in there that suddenly the muck goes away, and it's because the muck needs the excess nitrogen in the water, and then uh, the carbon of the trees sucks it up, and it's mm-hmm. like uh, suddenly all the muck goes away. Just add a few you know, logs in there. Yeah, you've added edge, which allows for the ecosystem to also, in the pond itself, to begin to get root, right? So many of the ponds I run into, especially here in the southeast, they're like, I say, that's not a pond. That's a hole in the ground with water in it. And people go, what? I was like, a pond is an ecosystem. That is not a pond. That is a hole in the ground with water in it. And pretty soon it will be a hole in the ground with water in it filled with algae. (laughs) <laughs> and mosquitoes. And mosquitoes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it'll it'll be something that does not add to your land. It'll be something that detracts. Right. So uh I I agree and uh but at the same time I think a lot of people have a have something that looks very much like a pond, like there's a lot of life around it, but there is this festering green muck. On, mm-hmm. on the surface, and they can't. I mean, one of the things that they do with it is to get a big. They they, they add a twenty foot long handle to a rake, and then they start <laughs> raking yep. it out and throwing it on their garden, which is great. It's just magical as as a mm-hmm. mulch. Yep. Um, and that's a that's a thing. It's kind of kind of a little work intensive and everything, but sure it right. works. Uh, but I think what's better is is, is throw a few logs in there. And it'll tie it up. And then the people, of course, throw uh, bales of organic hay in, and it, mm-hmm. it'll be even more effective at doing that. So I, I think this is one of the great places to point out this concept of resilience. Um, resilience is a concept that's been developed in, in science um, of ecology. It basically says that uh, a resilient ecosystem is an ecosystem that can return to its current state uh, when perturbed, right? And so what ends up happening is that state could be one that was desirable or undesirable. And an algae-dominated pond is a resilient ecosystem once again established, which means that it's in a regime that it, you have to put a certain amount of energy into it to push it back over into another regime. So this is why you kind of look at it and go, oh, now what we want to do is we want to flip it over into another regime in which there are aquatic plants that are taking up excess nutrients, that there are animals, that there's, you know, that things are getting oxygenated the way they need to. That turns it into a pond and you create a 
a resilient pond ecosystem, once that ecosystem is in place, it's resilient against slipping back into an algae-dominated ecosystem. So it's just one of the ways to think about managing these ponds. And a lot of times in these ponds, like I said, I would, I would want to see, as you said, at least 5 to 10% of the, 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 the land in water in in that area from Oregon, oh yeah, that's exactly where we want to see a lot of surface water. We want to see water retention spaces and ponds and let beavers do some of the hydrological work. But note that when that happens, that they that beavers don't go along with an excavator doing what we call down here a bathtub cut on the ponds. And there's a lot of places where constructed ponds, they bring in the excavator and they do what we call a bathtub cut, which basically means you go up there and they say, well, you don't want all those emergent plants. They don't call them emergent plants. All those weeds growing along the side. So what we're going to do is we're going to just cut it straight down, right? So it goes from like shoreline to four feet deep in like six inches, right? (laughs) Which means you can have no emergent plants. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you almost can't get an ecosystem going in there. You need edge. You need emergent plants so that you can oxygenate your water. You can have habitat for the fry of, of fish to get established, to have a ongoing. So, yeah, this is just part of that whole thing of creating that transitional edge between, you know, your your terrestrial ecosystem and your aquatic ecosystem. And beavers are great at doing that. They actually do that. But when we do it, we have to do the same thing. And when you do that, you now create all these great wetlands as well. And you're rehydrating landscapes massively. And this allows for that successional mosaic to have the hydrological backbone also, let's just point out that while you're doing it, you're getting broadleaf trees going again. They are the ones that are very efficient at restarting the small hydrological cycle. And I, I'm convinced from a little bit of just observing that broadleaf deciduous forests are better at maintaining the small hydrological cycle than our conifer forests. And I don't know, Paul, if you have an opinion I agree. On that. I agree with that. Um, yeah. I I think that conifer forests make creeks go away. Yeah. And um and I think that if you want to see a if you've got a dry creek bed and you haven't seen a creek there in 10 years, then it's like okay, we can fix that. But one of the steps is we got to take these conifers out. Mhm. And uh so yeah, I I kind of feel like um there's all kinds of ways to do this. And uh, the right kinds of trees is, is going to be a, a, a big game changer. Because that's another thing, too, is that if you have creeks on the land, then that land is much less likely to um, be subjected to a wildfire. Yes. And so I, I kind of feel like this is one of the major ingredients. All right. So. So let me just, so let me just give the principle that goes with that, which is the creeks grow the trees and the trees grow the creeks. Ooh, yes, I like that very much. But, of course, that's the right kind of trees. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. The, the whole conversation we're having today is about being more resistant to wildfires. And it's like, so, you know, with a million acres, part of what I'm suggesting is, step one, bring in 10,000 people to live here. Now, and granted, I don't want them to just, build a city in the middle of it 
and be like, woohoo, you know, no, not like that. I'm talking about one person per 100 acres, like they're on that 100 acres. And, and my mission to them is, is to develop a symbiotic relationship with that land in such a way that it not only reduces um, the uh, uh, fuel load, but it also makes the land, their 100 acres, more resilient. Because I kind of feel like when we look at the land from the perspective of, like, one person managing a million acres, that's that's a fail point. Now, of course, if we took a million acres, one possible strategy is nobody gets to go onto this land at all. If there's a forest fire, the whole thing burns down, and that's okay. And uh, and eventually it returns to what it would be like when we talked about for 500 years ago, only without the human management of 500 years ago. So we've impoverished it of a keystone species, basically. We well, said we, we will. We will. That, but that's right. not what well, I want. Agreed. What I'm saying is, if you if that was the management regime that somebody selected, then what they've effectively said is that we are going to deny that human beings are supposed to be a keystone species to on the planet. And the reason I bring that up is because that is a message that certain of radical environmentalists kind of give without explicitly saying it. Right. They give this message that human beings are inherently destructive to ecosystems and that as a result that what you should do, Mr. Wheaton, you own those million acres, therefore your moral responsibility is get the hell off and let nature do its thing. And to which I would respond, excuse me, but Mr. Wheaton is part of nature, and he is the keystone species that should be there. And without him, that will never be able to reach the level of ecosystem function and richness and diversity than it would. If, you know, without him, it would never reach that level as it would if he were there doing what he knows how to do. Which is why I'm advocating bringing in 10,000 people. Yeah, and you're just looking at spreading them out a little differently than I am. Um, you right. Know, I'm looking a little bit more clumpy, and um, I, I, you know, because I want to bring in 10,000 people with the idea that each person will bring in 10 people, so that'll bump it up to 100,000 people, and I end up with one person per 10 acres. And um, but I also kind of feel like, um, in a way. I'd have uh, something of an HOA, and only my HOA would be a permaculture HOA. And and it's like, uh, so, you know, here's our criteria for, for being here as part of this project. It's a sweet-ass deal, provided that it's a sweet-ass deal for both of us, because this is my million acres, right? Could we, instead of having an HOA, have an EPA? <laughs> Ecosystem Precipita- Participation Association? Uh, we could do something like that. I think we have to pick a different acronym. Sure, but I just kind of had to make it up on the fly. So sitting here thinking about this, it's sort of like, you know, Homeowners Association is just sort of like it really, like, puts the, 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 the emphasis completely on the idea that everything here is all about this home and that everything is managed for the benefit of the homeowners in a very, like, consumer-centric way versus, like, 
no, we're all participants in this ecosystem that we are now living in. And so we look at ourselves as cohabitants with the rest of the living things and that we realize that our richness depends upon their existence and their thriving as well. Okay. So uh, uh, I think what I was trying to do is say HOA because we're familiar with that general format. Yes. Only, you know, and it's like basically there's this overlaying thing, which is like this is what we're into, and you get a sweet deal if you're cool with this. Because I'm concerned about people that are like, I'm here for the sweet deal, but I'm just going to give you lip service and telling you about, you know, what I'm going to do because I'm, I'm going to just make a shit show. I'm going to just pile up trash everywhere, you know, something like that. So it's kind of like uh, – but the, the moral of the story is, is that I agree adding that keystone species you speak of is going to make it with the right cookbook is going to make it so that this million acres is far more resilient to forest fires than the current process. Now, Absolutely. I think Part of what I was trying to say is that if it took the million acres and, like, did not allow anybody on it, I think the fire, the forest, the wildfire thing would kind of sort itself out and be better than it is now in time. Probably, yes. It would be bad for a few years, and then it would get better. Yes, because you would get back down to a natural fire regime, and the and the ecosystems know how to adapt to that. It's just that, um, yeah, it wouldn't be as efficient as if it were had – people managing it, um, and you would have, yeah, I agree with that. The other thing I would just throw in is, like, that if you have humans as an intelligent keystone species, then, then they realize that inviting all the other keystone species back to the game is important, which is where we talked about beavers. But right. then you'd also talk about wolves and, right. you know, okay. other large ruminants and all and amphibians and all the other keystone species we would be creating because we know that all of them come in and participate in that dance that improves everybody's life, including our own, and gives us all kinds of yields we don't even have to work for. Yeah. All right. I'm at the end of my list. You got anything more? I think that is general broad outline. Um you know, it basically um, comes back down to the whole thing, as both of us were saying, is that we're going to work with nature instead of try to fight against it. We're not going to – I think there's this idea that we need to hold forests in some sort of stasis, right, that forests are these abstract static things, and that therefore if they've been allowed to get into the state of being a conifer monoculture, that conservation equals holding them in that state almost artificially, right, where nature wouldn't wouldn't do that. And so there's this false idea of environmental stewardship at that moment. It's like, oh, there's a million acres of conifer. If you're going to steward that, then that looks like you not disturbing that million acres of conifer monoculture. And I think the answer is we have to say that million acres of conifer monoculture may very well have gotten there because we have not allowed for natural – ecosystem succession to happen on that landscape for a long time. We've tried to suppress wildfire on that landscape. We've done other things that have kept the successional mosaic for expressing itself on that land. And therefore, simply like cordoning it off and, you know, uh, and, and saying that conservation equals not 
uh, fixing what we broke, you know, what we were partially responsible for breaking uh, is not conservation. What it is is it's artificial. It's like it's a nature museum, right? Instead of engaging with a living dynamic ecosystem that wants to have this huge diversity of life that we've helped deprive it of that. So, I think what both of us are saying is let's get in there on those landscapes and take back up the responsibility of of helping that you know that 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 great mosaic of life really get the dance back to going where we've kind of suppressed it in the past mm-hmm. and by so doing we can return to natural fire regimes in which fire is a natural element of the ecosystem that is um, creative instead of destructive and that we can learn how to work with it in productive ways. Perfect. I, I, I think that the most important part is, is the part where we can make land support ten times more wildlife ten times more life with a human being there um, than, than if we were to keep the human beings out. I, I think that's kind of what we're shooting for. So it meets your eco-culture as well as the permaculture, I think, but that's another debate for another day. Hmm. Anything else? I think that's a good first attack at it. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about Wildfire mitigation, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.